Christine introduced us to our Life of Influence study as a whole and to Ruth more specifically. She gave us a little bit of context and she laid out some of the themes that we're going to cover in our study. And, um, oh look, there's our, there's our title slide. Um, she gave us a preview of some, whoa now, it's getting crazy. Um, Gave us a preview of some of the influencers that we are going to see in Ruth and Esther. And she gave us a little spoil alert that the greatest influencer in both of these books is God himself. And she um, shared some of the themes that we're going to be covering. She shared um, who God is and what he does. He is the author and the hero. She shared a little bit about who um, we are and what we do, that we find our identity in the author and the hero, and that leads us to some influence. And we recapped all of that in two... I can't do this, y'all. I'm a little rusty. I'm going to have to figure this out again. Anyway, she recapped it all in two sentences for us, that God is the purposeful author and hero of our story that he defines our identity and he invites us into lives of influence. So we're going to dive into Ruth today, chapter one, the first 18, 18 verses, 18 verses. Get my numbers right. Um, but first, before we do any of that, let's pray real quick. Father, we are grateful for this morning. We are grateful for the beautiful weather, for the cooler temperatures. We are grateful for the opportunity to gather as your people. Um, you made us for community, and you gave us your word, and you designed your word to be read both um, on our own and as a people together. And we pray that as we get into it today, that the words of our mouths and the thoughts and the focus of our hearts will be pleasing to you because we love you. And we pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So, I have a story to tell you. Um, when I was 18 years old, the end of my freshman year of college at UNC Chapel Hill, um, I got a phone call the evening of May 3rd. My mom called me to tell me, this is in the days of like the early days of cell phones, and so I had my nice little, um, she called me on my little cell phone, and she told me um, that my dad had been experiencing some numbness, and some things weren't quite right, and so they were going to take him to the ER, and she just wanted me to know, be aware, that something weird was going on. She would keep me posted. Um, I was in the middle of my fall or spring finals week. It was a great week to be getting news that something wasn't quite right with my dad. Um, and I very clearly remember a couple of days later, I was sitting on this little stone wall outside of Die Hall getting ready to walk into my French exam when my world came crashing down around me. Um, another phone call from my mom. I cannot remember the words that she used, um, but I can remember that she told me that he had had a massive stroke and they were not sure that he was going to make it. And I sat on that stone wall and I absorbed all of that and I walked into my French exam and I laid my head on my desk and waited for my professor to pass out the paper. The man who coached my brother's soccer game, the man who came to all of my dance recitals, the man who um, took me on daddy-daughter dates growing up might not live to the end of the day. And as the 
uncertainty increased and as the fear increased and as the panic rose, I was faced with a choice. Do I believe that God is bigger than the circumstance that I'm in or not? Am I going to resolutely trust him even when I don't know how this story is going to end or am I going to run? I'm guessing there is not a single one of us in this room that hasn't stared down a dire or difficult circumstance, who hasn't been faced with some kind of uncertainty, a job, parenting, um, illness, all kinds of uncertainties in our lives. And that's exactly the situation that we find ourselves in in this text in Ruth. So if you have your Bibles or if you have your phone or if you have an app or your iPad or something, I encourage you to open it up to Ruth Ruth 1. And we're going to um, quickly do, do a quick overview of this story here. In verses 1 and 2, we get the setting of the stage. And Christine did a lot of this for us last week, so we're not going to go too much farther in depth. But just as a, as a refresher, verse 1 tells us that this story is occurring in the time of the judges. And the time of the judges was a time when there was no king in Israel. Well, there was a king in Israel. God was the king in Israel, but there was no Um, person king in Israel, and the people weren't happy with that. And at that time, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, and things were not great. So then we're told that there's a famine in the land. There's no food. Weather's not cooperating. Crops aren't growing. For whatever reason, there is a famine, Um, and we are introduced to a family, Elimelech and Naomi and their sons, Malin and Chilean, and um, they live in Bethlehem in Israel, Um, kind of ironic because the name Bethlehem means house of bread, and there is no bread. And Elimelech um, takes his family from Israel into the country of Moab. The implication here is that maybe Elimelech is not quite trusting God to provide and instead of staying put in Israel, he removes, his, he did what's right in his own eyes, and he takes his family out of the promised land and back into the wilderness. We're going backwards here. And they go to the country of Moab, and Moab has a less than friendly relationship with the nation of Israel. You can read all about it in Numbers, in the beginning of Judges, lots of contention, lots of strife. They're, they're enemies, basically. So he's moving into en- enemy territory here. And then in verses 3 through 5, we have, oh, there. So kingdom of Israel and Judah, it's all one at this point. But um, Bethlehem is just right here, right under the star of Jerusalem. He's moving them into Moab. So we then have, um, if 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 you know anything about stories, you have what's called an inciting incident. It's the thing that moves characters into action. So here in verses 3 through 5, we have our inciting incident. We get the spiral into destitution. Um, Elimelech dies. He tried to run from one crisis, and it seems that he's put his family right into another. He dies. So Naomi is left with her two sons. They marry Moabite women, which the Israelites were forbidden to marry outsiders. So they're making some not great choices. And then 10 years pass by and both sons die. So now we have three women, one of them in enemy territory, 
who have no way of providing for themselves whatsoever. They are in a dire and hopeless situation. So then we move into verses 6 and 7, and we, um, we see the women on the move now. The prelude of the story is over. The inciting incident has happened, and now the real action of the story begins. Naomi hears word that the Lord has um, turned his favor back on Bethlehem, that food has been provided again, and she decides to pack up and go home. Maybe she has a better shot of um, a decent life back home in her own land. And she takes her daughters-in-law with her who refuse to leave her. And then to wrap our brains around this, this trek that these three women are doing, presumably by themselves, this is, Moab is in what's modern day Jordan. So this is a Google map of the area as it is right now. And I just Google mapped a path from what is approximately the center of what was Moabite territory and did a walking path to the town of Bethlehem. This is what they were doing. Seven to ten-ish day journey, not particularly safe through wilderness by themselves. It's not like they had a GPS. It's not like they had cars. It was a pretty treacherous journey, and they decided that this was way better than staying where they were. But on the way, Naomi has some second thoughts. She's taken her daughters-in-law with her, and she starts thinking about how difficult life might be for them where they're going. Foreigners from a despised land with no husbands and no children, no means for providing themselves, they are going to be the lowest of the low. And so Naomi begs her daughters-in-law to go back home, to stop going with her, to turn around and to go back home to this safety and provision that are probably going to be waiting for them if they return to their families. And interestingly enough, in her plea, she asks the covenant God to show covenant faithfulness and loyalty to her daughters-in-law when they return. And though she does this twice, and though it pains her to abandon her mother-in-law, Orba decides to turn back. She seems like she's making a choice not much better than Elimelech's. But Ruth instead takes a stand, and she makes an incredible declaration. We read it. I'm going to just read it to you because it's pretty amazing. Verse 16, she says, Don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. Ruth is taking a stand here and choosing to align herself with Naomi, with Naomi's people, with um, the people of Israel, with Yahweh. Um, The motives... We cannot understand in our language the strength of this declaration, the strength of this decision. She's choosing to leave everything behind, everything that she knows could potentially provide her safety and security. And she's choosing to align herself with Naomi, with Naomi's people, with Naomi's God, and moving forward into a very uncertain situation. 
And scripture doesn't make her motives clear, but let's think in our imaginations for a minute. What might motivate you to leave all that you know behind, to forsake significance and security, um, to follow your mother-in-law into a dire situation where you know that as a person in this society, you will probably be worth next to nothing? So what kind of example must have Naomi set before Ruth? What did she teach in all those years in Moab? Um, What exposure did Ruth have to Yahweh to be able to um, make this kind of decision, make this kind of stand? So clearly we know that Ruth has um, learned something about Yahweh to be able to invoke this personal covenant name of the Lord when she makes her solemn vow. Now, it is tempting to read this story of Ruth, to read her profound and courageous declaration and see a titan of the faith. When I think about Ruth in this kind of situation, I, um, I see this. Now, I, I know this is a statue of a man, so just bear with me here, but this is the Colossus of Rhodes. This is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And when I tend to think about this like courageous declaration, I'm picturing this towering character in history. But let's remember, at this moment that this story is happening, when it's unfolding in real time, Naomi and Ruth are regular women facing harsh realities of a real life. Something more like this. And I am sure that when Ruth made her courageous decision, she didn't make that decision expecting that a group of women in Charlotte, North Carolina, sitting in a Bible study at New City Church nearly 3,000 years later is going to be talking about her. So when we read Ruth's story, when we read this, this section specifically in the story as a whole, it's tempting for us to think, well, I'm not like Ruth. I don't have faith like Ruth. There's no way I can be courageous like Ruth in the face of fear and uncertainty. But I think when we remember that she is an unlikely woman taking it day by day, step by step, making decisions to follow the Lord, we can be like her. And there are two things we can pull out of the scripture that I think will help us. If we remember that God is bigger and that God is better, what does it mean that God is bigger? Well, we talk about it in our our, um, summary statements here, that he is the purposeful author of our story. He is in control of everything. And we have plenty of evidence here in this story. We get it from um, the author of Ruth himself when he says that the Lord provided food. Um, We see it hinted at in Naomi when she's asking the Lord to bless her daughters-in-law if they go back. Clearly she has um, some belief that the Lord is the one who's doing things. Um, She says that the Lord's hand has gone out against her. So there's this understanding that the Lord is over all things, orchestrating all things. And we can be confident that this is purposeful. That even in the middle of hardships that we experience, there is hope because he is the purposeful author. And we can be confident that the story the Lord is writing for us is a good one. Okay, so how can we be confident that the Lord is writing us a good story? Um, I think we can see it. We can, if we fast forward to the New Testament, there's a lot of evidence. um, And one of them is in Romans. 
Romans 8, 28. It was in your homework. So if you didn't get a chance to get it, we're going to cover it right here. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose for them. Now, this is a verse that a lot, a lot of us are very familiar with. Um, we love to quote this verse. But a lot of times we're quoting this verse and we're thinking of it in the context of um, work together for the good, that if I'm happy, if I'm content, um, if things are working out well for me, then things must be good. But if you pull back and look at the context of this verse, Paul is talking about God working things for the good of those who love him in the middle of suffering. And the verse that immediately follows this one, verse 29, says that for God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son. So what is our good? Our good is to be more like his son, Jesus. Um, fortunately, my dad was uh, miraculously saved and largely restored to his pre-stroke state. Um, a few side effects but mostly able to continue life normally. Um, and when we think back on that season of our life, um, it was a very defining moment in both my younger brother and my life. Um, it was a very defining moment in our walk of faith. And if you were to ask my dad, knowing how it impacted us, how it molded us into people who are more like Jesus, my dad would tell you he would choose the stroke. Um, God is the purposeful author of our story, and we can be confident that the story he is writing is for our good. Now hear me. I am not minimizing the pain and the anguish of dark and difficult seasons of life. Um, for some of us, darkness and difficulty is not just a season, but it is the ongoing reality of our entire lives on this side of eternity. And it can be trite for us to stand up here and say things like God is the author of our story and it is a good one. Um, I don't understand why he does the things he does in our life. I do not understand the sufferings he puts us through. Um, but somehow... Adversity and suffering are working to make us who God wants us to be. So if we really understand that God is bigger than our circumstances and that he's purposefully authoring each of our stories and leading us toward our good, then we can trust that God is better. And He is better than anything that we are tempted to rely on for our own safety and security. Our money, our power, our positions, um, the idols that we are tempted to run to. And because of that, he is worthy of our allegiance and our obedience. He is worthy of our trust. And we see that in Ruth's declaration. Again, she clearly knows something about who the Lord is, and she has made the choice to follow him in following Naomi. And as people who know the ultimate end of the story, as people who know Jesus, who have had the opportunity to read um, the New Testament, Ruth's declaration, her decision to align herself with Yahweh, makes, reminds me of some of my favorite verses in the Gospel of John. They are in chapter 6. Jesus has just explained that he is the bread of life. He has, uh, well, he's fed the 5,000. Then he explains he's the bread of life. And he, um, that kind of drives some of his followers away. 
And he turns to the 12 and he says, are you going to leave too? And Peter says this, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know the Holy One of God. If God is bigger, he is better. And who else can we go to? So when we're facing the famines of our own life, when we feel like we are on that spiral down into destitution, when we are on the hard road of an unknown future, whether by our own missteps or by reasons we will never understand, we have a choice. And this is our choice. Are we going to run or are we going to resolve? Are we going to run to our own idols, to our own abilities, to our own visions? Are we going to run away from the only one who can provide us true hope? Or are we going to resolve to trust that God is the purposeful author of our story, the story he is writing is good, and he is worth trusting? That's a choice that I faced that sitting right there on that stone wall outside of Dye Hall that spring semester in my freshman year. So what does resolving to trust God and have to do with living a life of influence? Once we are resolved to lean into who God is and what he's done for us, and if we allow him to conform us to the image of his son, if we allow him to define our identity, then all kinds of doors to influence are open to us. Think about it. Ruth's resolution to walk with Naomi, to follow the Lord, to make Naomi's God her God, ultimately resulted in her being grafted into the lineage of Jesus. That is a massive influence. Now, clearly none of us are going to be in the lineage of Jesus, but I think when we resolve to follow the Lord, allow him to conform us to the identity of his son, we will find some things happening in us in the midst of our difficulties. Um, Things like peace, a settled contentment um, in the face of the unknown, patience, courage. And these things are very attractive in a very hopeless world. Choosing to follow and trust Jesus and allowing him to conform us to the image of his son will give us the opportunity to have an influence and an impact on the people around us. And while we might not be in the lineage of Jesus, we will have opportunities to bring people to Jesus. So, here's the deal. This decision to run or resolve is not a one and done thing. It is a choice that we're going to have to make over and over again. I had to make it when my dad had a stroke. And five years later, he had another life-threatening medical emergency, and I had to make it again. A few years um, years ago, this is a story for another time, but a few years ago, I started losing my eyesight. I had to make a decision. Am I going to trust the Lord? Um, The pandemic came. We were in a season of job uncertainty in the middle of the pandemic. We had to make the decision, are we going to trust the Lord? This is a choice we have to make on a daily basis, and it is a choice that can be exhausting. We can stumble, stumbling through these hard things can wear down our resolve. So what do we do? We can remember, we can recite, and we can recruit. We remember. We remember what God has done for us. 
A few years ago, my parents um, handed my husband and I and my brother and his wife little journals and told us um, to remember, to write down the ways we see God's provision in this booklet. And um, in our family, I mean, we're almost 20 years after this event, and we still celebrate Stroke Day on May 3rd. It is a milestone for us. Um, Remember what the Lord has done for you. Look at the bits of your story where he has, that he, places he's already written and proven himself to be good. And then recite that to yourself over and over and over and over again. And recruit others to remember with you, to retell the story to you when you're not sure that you can tell it to yourself. What do you want to bet that Ruth and Naomi told that story of God's provision to each other for years till the end of their life. Recruit others who can tell you the stories of God's goodness when you can't do it for yourself anymore. So let's remember this, that God is the purposeful author of our story. He is worthy of our allegiance and obedience even when the ending is uncertain. Because while we never know what story he might be writing for us, we can be confident that this story ends in our good and for his glory. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for stories of your goodness. Stories um, that remind us that in the face of uncertainty and hardship, you are worthy of being trusted. I pray that you would give us the courage and the confidence to make that decision. As we go into our groups together, bless our conversation. Help them to bring us into a deep understanding of who you are and who we are to be in light of that. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.